Now let's uh, remain standing just for a moment. We've read a lot of psalms today. We're going to read one more. This is from Psalm 119. We'll read verses 1 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek them with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The law of the Lord is perfect. Amen. Please be seated. I'm finally getting the hang of my order of worship and the standing sitting part. Thank you for your patience. This evening we are considering um, the doctrines of the Westminster Confession of Faith and we're thinking about chapter 1 still. And uh, this evening paragraphs 4 and 5 and 10 and, and really just trying to put those together to think about the authority of God's Word. But uh, the way that I want to make this, um, the application of this doctrine of the authority of God's Word is, is in this way. Um, you and I are concerned. We are concerned about the state of the, the U.S. We are concerned about bringing the gospel to bear on places like prisons and nursing homes, in our communities, in our families sometimes. We, we, we wrestle with, how do I go about sharing the gospel? What is the best way to do that? And um, in our lifetime maybe a little more than our lifetime, we've observed some, maybe some drastic changes in the way that churches do worship, for instance. So you might, if you, if you happen to visit around and go to some other churches, you, you, might, um, you might go to a church where they don't read the Bible very much. You, you might have observed that. You, may, you might go to a church where the, the minister will stand up for the sermon and he doesn't start with Scripture. And, and one of the things that you should recognize about that is there's a philosophy behind that. And the philosophy is this. Uh, uh, my concern, and I'm, I'm quoting, so to speak here, my concern is that if we use too much Scripture, we're going to turn people off. Have you ever heard anything like that before? If we read the Bible, people might be offended. They, we, have to, we have to sort of get a run up. We need to start the plane at the, at the beginning of the runway 
and get people to the point where they're ready to receive Scripture. Maybe you're familiar with that kind of a, of, of a philosophy. Well, when we start to think about the authority of Scripture, it, it is in direct conflict with that idea. And, and so I want to try to spell that out for you tonight as we think about this doctrine of the authority of the Bible, because in some sense, I think it, it's going to let you off the hook a little bit. Because when you, when you understand what, what God does in and through the reading and the preaching of His Word, just simply put, even from, from people like you and me, ordinary people like you and me, we're not gifted geniuses, we're not, we are not the Francis Schaeffers or the Cornelius Van Tills of the world, we're just ordinary people who are in our community living and breathing and doing our work that God can use us to, to bring the kingdom of Christ into our community, not because of who we are, but because of the power of the Spirit working through the Word. And that, that's what I want to come across tonight. And the psalmist, we looked at Psalm 119, he expressed, did you catch how over and over he said, I delight in your Word. You know, it, it, seems, it seems so basic, I, I think. And maybe, maybe some people would say you're oversimplifying things. But for a melancholy person, a person who really struggles with, you know, the lows in life are really low. That time in God's Word really is a balm to the believer's soul. The, the, the psalmist says this, Lord, you have, wor you have worked so powerfully in my life that I delight. I mean, he says it over and over and over in just those 16 verses. I delight in it. Your law, it's not, a, it's not a source of oppression to me. It's a delight. To, del to apply yourself to God's Word is to seek it with your, your whole heart. And so, tonight as we think about Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 1, paragraphs 4 and 5 and 10, what we're going to see is that the authority of Scripture is given by God, that's number one, it is instilled by the Holy Spirit, that's number two. It is submitted to in the church, and it is challenged among men. So first of all, let's, let's notice that God gives um, His Word authority. Why do men have to listen to and obey God's Word? Why do they have to do that? This is my Q&A time with you. <laughs> well, very simply, men have to listen to and obey the Bible because it comes from God. And that sounds really simplistic, and that's the answer. The Bible comes from God, and this is exactly what uh, we learn in Scripture. For instance, uh, this was Peter's argument in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to, 29, uh, 19 to 21. Listen, listen to what he says here. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now think about that. In Peter's day, what's happening? Are miracles be, and miraculous works of God, are they becoming more numerous or less numerous? Less numerous. 
You think we go through the time of the Acts, and in the time of the Apostles, as as the Scriptures come to a close, what's happening is the miraculous works of God, those supernatural things that He does in the earth, are less and less. But Peter says, lucky are you, you live in an era in which God's Word is more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here, Here it is. Why is the Bible authoritative for every man? The Bible's authoritative because it comes directly from God. When you interact with Psalm 119, you are reading God's very words. Not mediated to you by any man, but from Him directly. He is speaking to you on every page of Scripture. Scripture has one author. But one of the things that we are reminded of repeatedly is that men clamor for proof. You go to the circus, you see some sort of uh, magic trick, and you want to know how that thing works. You want proof. This has always been the case. We read in Matthew 12, 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthian church, said in in chapter 1, verse 22, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks demand wisdom. In other words, they're saying, look, if you can show me some powerful thing, then I'll believe. This is like the the man who stands before God, and he's in a a low place and says, Lord, if you'll you'll cause a comet to streak across the sky, if you'll uh, make a tree grow right here immediately, I'll believe in you. Well, that's... That's the unregenerate man's folly when what he has before him are God's words directed to him intimately. Peter says we have something more than miracles. Something more than miracles in your lap right now is God's word. When all is said and done, Peter says you must believe God's word because he has invested his authority in that word. But he goes further. He says, look, you're asking for testimony. And in in courts all across America every day, um, men take the witness stand. And what do they do? They place their hand upon, well, they used to place their hand upon the Bible. I guess they, they probably don't in all places anymore. Maybe you can put your hand upon a comic book as some Congress people do. Um, but they, they receive this sworn testimony. And the court says that's authoritative. And a jury will listen to that testimony and they will say, this is authoritative and we're going to declare a man guilty or not guilty on the basis of that testimony. Well, listen to what John says in 1 John 5, 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. When you look to the word, you're not reading the testimony of men. 
you are reading God's testimony of all that has come to pass. You are reading His testimony about His purpose for your life. This is John's argument for submitting to the Scriptures, just like Peter. Why do you submit to it? Because it's God's testimony, and His testimony is greater than anything that any man could ever tell me. And what we find is that in the ministry of the apostles, as they were going throughout various cities, what's happening? Well, in places like Thessalonica, men are listening to them preach, and they are saying, this is not the words of men. This is God's word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul said, you received our words not as words from men, but as the very word of God. Why? Because this is God's testimony. Now, this is not to say that there are no convincing proofs that the Bible is God's word, is it? The Westminster Confession reminds us that there are many. Are are there convincing proofs to show your neighbor that the Bible is God's word? Well, yeah, there's the testimony of the church. You think about the church of Jesus Christ in all ages. What has it appealed to? Well, God's word. We find that in Psalm 119, what is the psalmist delighting in? The law of God. Psalm 1, delight yourself. The the godly man meditates upon God's word. You think about God's command to Joshua in Joshua 1. Be strong and courageous. Let not these words depart from you. It is the church's testimony throughout all times that God's word is our authority. Will you accept the church's testimony? Well, what about the testimony of the Bible itself? The confession reminds us that there are many proofs. You think about the heavenly character of the content. It is clear when you read the Bible that it doesn't come from men. These are not men's words. These don't come from the imagination of men. It's a heavenly matter there's heavenly character to the content you think about the efficacy of the doctrine if you read through the proverbs and you apply the words of the proverbs to your life things will go well with you even a fool is counted wise when he shuts his lips we can all say amen to that The beginning of strife is like letting out water. Therefore, quit before the quarrel breaks out. Wise words? Yeah. How about the majesty of its style? We often talk about the King James Version and the beauty of the language there. Well, that's not just due to the King James translators. That's because of the matter that they were translating. You think of the agreement of all its parts. From Genesis to Revelation, there is one story. What a beautiful thing it is that from Genesis to Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ could say, all of this testifies to me. And the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. Someone might say, in order to convince a man to trust Scripture, we need to prove to him the Scriptures are God's Word. Have you ever heard anything like that before? We need, to, we need to get kind of a running start. We've got to show men that the Bible is God's Word 
so that they will accept it and so that they will submit to it. I want to give you just three assumptions that you are operating from if you say something like that. So imagine this. We, we've got a friend who's really into science, biology, and so we say, and he's not a believer. And so we, we want to convince our friend that he needs to trust in Christ. And so we say, well, have you ever considered the eyeball or the digestive tract? We take some evidence from biology and we try to convince him based on that evidence to trust in the trustworthiness of God's word. Well, the problem that you have is whatever you refer to as proof, think of this, of Scripture's authority will always have more authority than the Bible. You follow me? I'll share with you a quote from someone you may not have heard of before, Greg Bonson. If the apologist, that is the defender of the faith, treats the starting point of knowledge as something other than reverence for God, then unconditional submission to the unsurpassed greatness of God's wisdom at the end of his argumentation does not really make sense. There would always be something greater than God's wisdom, namely, the supposed wisdom of one's intellectual starting point, whether it's science or history or whatever you use, the Word of God would necessarily, logically, if not personally, remain subordinate to that autonomous final standard. What Bonson is saying is whatever you start with to convince a man to come to faith will always be the authority for that man. And Scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Knowledge. Men may learn many things, but they know nothing until they fear the Lord. Assumption number two. Man is the judge, and God is the one to be judged. God must prove himself to me. Here's a quotation from C.S. Lewis. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge, fear and trembling. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. My friends, God has nothing to prove to you and me. He is not in the position of being judged. Man is in the judgment seat. God is the final judge. Assumption number three, when we assume to prove Scripture's reliability to a man by appealing to history or science or one of these other disciplines, what we're assuming is that that man's way of thinking 
is not affected by sin, that he's a perfectly rational creature and able to come to rational conclusions. But this is not the testimony of Scripture. I was thinking this afternoon about um, how I might illustrate this point, and imagine trying to teach a, a toddler how to, play, um, how to play risk or rook or spades. They simply don't have the comprehension to take in all of the rules and play the cards at the right time. Well, the unbelieving man is like this in the universe. Because of the darkness of his mind and his understanding, he can go on learning and never come to a knowledge of the truth. So no proof that you seek to offer will ever convince him that the Bible is God's word. But this brings us then to our second point. Not only does the Bible have its authority for, from God, but the Spirit is the one who gives humility. This is, this is such an important point. And, and there are some people who will say, you know, the, in fact, many years ago, they actually added a chapter to the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's, we don't use it anymore. But they added a chapter to the Westminster Confession of Faith because they said, it doesn't refer to the Spirit enough. Well, actually, the Confession of Faith refers to the Spirit over and over and over again. And here, we think about how is it that men receive God's Word? How are they convinced? The Confession reminds us it is by the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. Do you know why you have submitted your life to the Word of God? Do you know why it was the psalmist's delight in all of his life? Because of the Holy Spirit working in his heart. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20 reminds us of this principle uh, when we find that uh, the anointing of the Holy Spirit enables us to discern the truth. Or you think about Jesus' words, I'll read them to you in John chapter 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me. That's the Spirit's purpose. For He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit of God enables us to comprehend the truth, to recognize the truth, and to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we learn that a man in his natural estate does not discern the things of God. He will never submit to the Word of God. Um, there's an interesting story about uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle. If you've, ever, if you've ever read about him, an Anglican bishop um, wrote a profound book called Holiness. Um, he, in his early life, was out shooting with some friends one day. And a dear friend of his and his father were with him. And I guess J.C. missed a target and he cursed. And so his friend's father rebuked him 
for cursing amongst them and told them that he needed to repent. Well, that, that came all over him. And so as his life progressed, he was one day just sitting in a worship service and they were, the, the sermon had come and gone and they were reading the Scriptures. And the minister read Ephesians 2, verse 8. And J.C. Ryle says that in that moment, just through the reading of the Scriptures, I was converted. Jonathan Edwards has a similar testimony. But the point that we're making here, listen, do you remember what Jesus said in John 10? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. This is why as a church, we, we have to remain committed to declaring the, uh, God's word so that Christ may attract, protect, and build up his sheep. He does it by his spirit. This is such a comfort to us, I think. It, it's freeing because God, he doesn't need your perfect testimony or your perfect elevator speech to bring men to Christ. But here's the other thing as well, that if you, if you have friends that you've been ministering to, if you've been witnessing to people and they haven't come to accept the Lord, that's not your fault. That is not because of some defect in you unless you're not using the Word. God works in and by His Word through His Spirit to bring men to saving faith. Thirdly, we learn from the confession, this is in chapter 10, that the church, with reference to the Bible, acts submissively. We act submissively. Now, um, I think probably all of you know that our church constitution is made up of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Book of Church Order. But the supreme judge... The supreme judge for us is not the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is not the book of church order. The supreme judge for us is Scripture. Now, this was important, especially as you think about the context of the 1700s when they were writing the Westminster Confession of Faith and, and trying to draw biblical distinctions from Roman Catholicism which holds that the church is the supreme judge. And in the Council of Trent, this is stated, Furthermore, in order to restrain petulant spirits, it decrees, that is Rome, that no one relying on his own skill shall, in matters of faith and of morals, pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, resting the sacred scripture to his own senses, presumed to interpret the said sacred scripture contrary to that sense which Holy Mother Church, whose it is to judge of the true sense and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures, hath held and doth hold. In other words, if you as a private citizen, according to the doctrines of Rome, take it to yourself to interpret the scriptures, and if you in any way contradict the authority of the church, you will be subject to ecclesiastical and, where applicable, civil penalties, up to and including 
the loss of your head. Or in John Wycliffe and John Huss's case, the burning of your body and the burning of your bones. To con- contradict this pronouncement of the church is to be in danger. But the true place of Scripture is not under the authority of church. The church, as we have said before, is under the authority of Scripture. Remember, as John Calvin said, the church doesn't even have a definition apart from the Bible. Lastly, men shape their lives accordingly. What are some of the things in our day that challenge the authority of Scripture? What are some of the things in our day that challenge uh, the authority of the Bible? Well, I think one, probably first and foremost, is my sinful desires. My heart is always trying to contradict the Bible. My heart is always trying to put me on the throne and dethrone the authority of God and His Word. And we think about how many times we we come across something in Scripture and it convicts us, and you try to do what? Well, you try to hem and haw and, and get around that and say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Another thing, another way that we, we fail to shape our lives by God's Word is, is not consulting it. Not day by day attempting to mature in God's Word and asking Him, Lord, guide me by Your Holy Spirit to understand this Word so that my life more and more might be shaped by Scripture. With every passing day, I want to be lower and lower under the Word of God, submitting to it in everything, even the things that I find uncomfortable. You think about family traditions and cultural pressure. There is the pressure to to modify your beliefs to fit in so that you are not ostracized by sometimes family, but mostly the culture. And then I think one of the major challenges that we especially face, um, especially in the PCA, is this, that the rise of the, the mental health revolution. It is teaching us the premise of the mental health revolution. The premise is this, that man can be reduced to chemical processes. And that the way to treat any sort of behavioral disorder is through medicine. This challenges. This challenges the authority of Scripture which says to you that you are a body-soul unit. And the the challenges that you have in your personality, the challenges that you might have with wild swings between joy and sadness or anxiety, they don't rest up here primarily. They are a part of your spiritual being. And this is why Christ can then command them, don't be anxious, don't be afraid. These institutions... Challenge the authority of Scripture. The psalmist in verse 16 writes, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. As we've learned, the Bible's 
God-given authority, it is under constant attack, as we might expect. But the faithful child of God will not call God's precepts a burden to him under the guiding hand of the Holy Spirit. They are a delight, and he will not forget them. The authority of Scripture is given by God. It is instilled by the Holy Spirit. It is submitted to in the church and applied by men. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, we thank you so much for your authoritative word. We thank you that you demonstrate your love for us and your care for your church by causing it to be written down. And oh Lord, we ask that you would make us like this psalmist who himself is a depiction of the Lord Jesus Christ who delighted himself in your law. He loved to do it because he loves you. May we be conformed to his image in every way. We pray in his name. Amen.